Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, Howard W. French makes the case that the standard narrative of the age of discovery, exploration, and empire didn't originate from Europe's search for ties with Asia, but rather from its centuries-old desire to forge a trade in gold with rich black societies in the heart of West Africa, and that Africa played a central role in the rise of the modern world. Mr. French is a career foreign correspondent and global affairs writer, currently a professor at the Columbia Journalism School. His book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, is published by Livewright, a division of W.W. Norton, and brings Howard French to our show now. Thanks. Welcome. Great to be with you, Leonard. From 1990 to 2008, you reported overseas as the New York Times Bureau Chief for Central America and the Caribbean, West and Central Africa, Japan, the Koreas, and China. Was that when you started thinking that almost everything we've been taught about this history is wrong? Um, yes and no. I mean, part of uh, the back, the deep background of this, uh, behind this book is my own life experience as a child of two African-American parents and having a mother whose family is based in, uh, in Virginia and descendants of slaves and of a particular slave master who was the property of uh, um, the slave master who was a, a very good friend of Thomas Jefferson and had a very similar story of, of forced race mixing as Thomas Jefferson famously did. Um, don't, you possess, another... don't you possess a copy of the bill of sale that this slave named Priscilla uh, when yes. she was sold in yes. 1812? Yes, absolutely. Wow. I have older siblings who excel in family research and were, were able to to obtain a copy of that document, um, which which is uh, you know uh, a precious keepsake for us all. So you write that the problem is not just that the people and cultures of Africa have been ignored and largely erased, but that they have been so miscast that the story has become part of a profound mistelling. Um, we're talking mostly about sub-Saharan Africa, aren't we? Um, yes, I mean so we are. The bulk of my narrative concerns Sub-Saharan Africa, but this story actually, this, the, the story of this miscasting actually begins in North Africa. Mm-hmm. Portugal was a very young and weak kingdom uh, in the 15th century, actually starting in the 14th century, and was seeking ways to get on its feet and to sustain its independence from Spain. And Portugal saw as the answer to that connecting with Africa. And so Portugal begins the Aviz dynasty begins by forging connections through trade and warfare with North Africa, uh, and then becomes obsessed with this idea that there was immense wealth uh, in somewhere uh, to be found in in the center of West Africa, meaning uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, And so this is what launches the so-called age of exploration, but this African portion of the age of exploration is, is sort of Curiously, I would even say insidiously left out of the standard narratives, which only begin with much later, uh, more than a century later, with the search for um, maritime routes to Asia. But the Portuguese explorers that um, uh, whose names I know all went to Asia, didn't they? Vasco da Gama, Ferdinand Magellan, and Bartolomeu Dias. Well, in the case of two of those that you mentioned, they spent critical decades working in West Africa, trading uh, on behalf of Portugal in gold with Hmm. uh, very rich sources of that metal in what is presently known as the country of Ghana. 
Uh, and they arrived there only after many decades of persistent effort by the Aviz dynasty, much of which was overseen by this historic figure, Henry the Navigator. He didn't actually navigate himself, but he was obsessed with gold in so-called Black Africa and commissioned a series of voyages that ended up employing da Gama, Bartolomeu Diaz, Christopher Columbus, and many, many others among the great. Magellan was not one of them, but many, many others among the great sort of foundational um, explorers of this age of discovery and exploration. So, uh, and this all this begins in West Africa. So before Columbus sailed to the Americas, he uh, sailed to what is now the modern day Ghana? Uh, Columbus spent um, two decades sailing in uh, the Atlantic Ocean, uh, skirting the West African coast. And this culminates after the discovery of, a, of enormous amounts of gold in modern Ghana in the year 1471, which is part of the subtitle of my book that, that year. Um, Columbus then becomes a captain of ships servicing a fort that the Portuguese built in Ghana to uh, sort of anchor their gold trade. Uh, back and forth, back and forth. And so this is where Columbus sort of refined techniques of navigation, where Columbus probably understood the ocean currents um, that would take him to the Americas and where Columbus also just sort of became uh, further convinced that the world was actually round. Um, and so this all happens in relation to West Africa. But I was taught that Columbus had been inspired more by Marco Polo's writings about Asia in the late 13th century. That's totally wrong. Um, so the idea of um, the existence of a place we nowadays called Asia was not a new idea in the Middle Ages. Um, Rome uh, actually had uh, trade links overland with Asia, albeit somewhat tenuous, but nonetheless uh, certain. Um, Marco Polo comes back at the time you suggested uh, with these great tales, many of them fictional, uh, about the, the wealth of China. Um, the subsequent fascination with Asia, though, is less bound up in China than it is in South Asia, um, what is nowadays known as India. Um, but the persistent effort to reach India by sea postdates this West African phase of exploration. And it is the discovery of gold in West Africa, in Ghana in particular, beginning in 1471, that sort of... Uh, puts the Portuguese kingdom on two solid feet for the first time and gives it the financial wherewithal to begin to build subsequent fleets of exploration, which then, of course, discover not just a route to Asia, but also discover Brazil, um, and which also create really, really extensive trade ties for the first time between Portugal and northern European countries like, like Germany and the low, what is now Germany and the Low Countries. In, uh, for the, in order to obtain um, metals, metalware goods and textiles, which the Portuguese needed in order to trade for the gold with Africans in Ghana. So you make such, you say that the age of discovery began in Africa and you make such a strong case. I wonder why so much of the story you tell is so new to me and I suspect to all of my listeners as well. Is, is the culprit simply racism? Well, uh, so I haven't used the word racism in explaining this in my book, and I... I know, but it occurred to me while I was reading it. <laughs> uh, sure, I'm, I'm going to come to it. Um, I don't sort of 
this is not a word I, I, I relish brandishing. Um, and although I understand why you're asking me the question that way, I would put it slightly differently. I would say that the, the legacy of horror that uh, attends Europe's um, engagements with Africa and with Africans over the next five or six centuries following this discovery in 1471 is so great and in fact continues to be so great that Europeans have had to constantly find ways and people of European descent for that matter, mm. find ways of diminishing the significance of Africa in their story, in the story of their emergence as a civilization, meaning the civilization of the West and of their divergence from other great civilizational parts of the world, such as, for example, India and China. The horror connect that, that, that uh, Europe engaged in, mostly via the slave trade and plantation agriculture, is so total that um, uh, one had to develop a picture in order to assuage one's conscience, one had to develop a picture of Africa as having essentially been a terra nullius, an empty space, a place where there was no culture, there's no history, and therefore no importance. And so even if it is true that awful things were done with regard to Africans, um, at each point in the his subsequent history of this engagement, there have been stories told about how in the end, despite the horror that imposed on Africans, it was worth it even for the Africans because by virtue of the Europeans sort of uh, wisdom and, 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 con and conscience, let's say, Africans were brought into civilization. So you have to wipe Africans out of the story altogether in order to justify or try to justify what Europe did. So it began with Portugal. And the Columbus was an Italian who sailed for Spain. Uh, when did England, France, and Holland get into this mix? Well, Portugal, first on Columbus. Columbus was indeed an Italian, he was from Genoa, but he was a mercenary. And before he worked for Spain, he worked for Portugal, as I said, as a captain ferrying back and forth to Ghana, a specific place in Ghana called Elmina, Elmina servicing the gold trade there. Um, England gets into this business much later. Of course, early in the, 50, early in the 16th century, there are English pirates of various kinds, even involved in the slave trade, but England does not become a, a, a true imperial power in terms of the Atlantic world and slavery until the early 17th century. Um, uh, in 1500 or thereabouts, the Portuguese discover, quote unquote, discover Brazil after they have been pursuing uh, gold and slave trade in West Africa and Central Africa. And um, the sugar industry, meaning via um, plantation slave labor, transits the Atlantic from a place called Sao Tome, a tiny island where the, where the Portuguese had perfected sugar cultivation using slaves to Brazil. Uh, sugar plantation uh, production takes off in Brazil, Brazil being this enormous and very fertile territory. And then as, as a war breaks out between uh, Brazil, I'm sorry, between Portugal and uh, the Low Countries, <clears throat> uh, sugar then moves from Brazil to the Caribbean. Uh, and the English take over Barbados early in the 17th century. And in 1630, begin to plant sugar on Barbados using slave labor. And in fact, using slaves that they acquired in Brazil who were already expert in sugar production. Well, Columbus mistook the islands of the Caribbean for Japan and India. Uh, 
by the time Portugal was uh, at Brazil in Brazil, it was a, did Europeans all know that they were now uh, on, on had discovered new continents? By the time Portugal um, had begun to colonize Brazil in the early 17th century, hmm. the geography of, of that hemisphere was very quickly mastered and the Portuguese pretty much you see in the evolution of world maps in the 17th century the picture gets filled in very quickly and with greater accuracy because of the advances in navigation. Well you write that in the 1400s it was along Africa's western coast that Europeans perfected techniques of map making and navigation where ship designs were tested and improved and where sailors learned to understand the winds of the Atlantic Ocean. Correct. So uh, before Columbus arrived in uh, West Africa proper, he had been involved in uh, navigating back and forth to the Canary Islands, which is a group of islands a couple hundred miles off of the West African coast. And it is in the Canary Islands where his wife's family, in fact, owned property. <coughs> that Columbus begins to understand the currents of the Atlantic Ocean very well. Um, it is believed that the native, the long established European populations of the Canary Islands already had quite a good picture of the ocean currents and that the African civilizations on the African mainland, especially the empire of Mali on the West African coast also had a very good understanding of the Atlantic currents. And so it was Columbus's exposure to trade with the Canary Islands and eventually taking up a partial residence there that he comes to understand the workings of sea and wind currents. And this allows him to, to plot his way across the Atlantic once he found a backer for a trip like that. I have a, a theory that I develop in my book, which is <clears throat> that Columbus, uh, who makes the rounds of various imperial courts in Europe looking for a backer for an expedition to try to discover Japan or China on the other side of the ocean, only finds a backer after having been rejected everywhere uh, once the Portuguese um, have become enormously successful in trading for gold with Ghana. It is at that point that the Spaniards who had previously rejected uh, Columbus re-invited him into discussions and decided we better get into this game of exploration too. The Portuguese are making a killing. 25% of the Portuguese crown's entire income came in that era from trade with Ghana. And the Spaniards looked on green with envy, saying, we better get into this exploration game, too. They had tried to defeat the Portuguese in a naval battle off of Ghana and had, been and, and had lost. And so they said, let's fund this crazy guy, Columbus, and see what he can come up with. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Howard W. French. His book that we're discussing is Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, published by Liberate Publishing, which is a division of W.W. Norton. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. So European countries were engaging in naval battles to gain access to the gold of West Africa and then later to slaves? Yes. Yeah, so in 1471, the Portuguese discover, finally, a source of enormous gold wealth in, in present-day Ghana. And uh, within a decade, they had built a big fort there to protect um, this commerce. But before they were able to throw up this fort, whose, whose foundation I describe in detail in the book, the, the Spaniards and others tried to horn in on this trade. I mean, you can't under, overestimate 
the impact that this immense gold supply had on Portugal, really a kingdom that had almost nothing going for it economically prior to that point. Um, the Spaniards sent a, a convoy of about 30 naval vessels to the coast of West Africa to try to prize uh, this gold trade away from the, the Portuguese. And Portugal, a country about a tenth of Spain's size at that time, with far less means at its disposal, had intelligence about Spain's plan and sort of lay a, a naval ambush for them and managed to defeat the Spanish convoy. After that, after, after this, this battle, little known by contemporary Spaniards or Portuguese for that matter, um, the Spaniards basically quit trying to take over Ghana and begin looking further afield for discovery and exploration, hoping to find gold. Uh, everywhere Columbus went in the New World, the, the, the stories are, his first question was, is there gold here? And this is driven immediately by the Portuguese success in Ghana. But yeah, the Europeans saw Africa as both a home to huge quantities of gold, but also an inexhaustible source of labor. Uh, didn't the Catholic Church have a mixed history in regards to uh, the concept of slavery? Um, I wouldn't say mixed. The Catholic Church in the early centuries of the transatlantic slave trade was one notable exception, and that is its sort of belated um, recognition that Native Americans should not be subjected to slavery. The Catholic Church was all in on, on African slavery. Yeah, they, um, because Africans were pagans, but weren't white Arabs and Slavs also enslaved at one point or another because they were considered pagans? No, Arabs were never considered pagans. Arabs were considered people of the book. And so although it was, um, there was legitimate, according to Catholic theology, there were legitimate reasons to fight Arabs, being a pagan was not among them. Um, the thing you need to understand about the Catholic Church and the slave trade, or, or even to back up a step, um, uh, early modern Europe and the slave trade is that early modern Europe was, was um, uh, emerging from the aftermath of the Black Death, which mm -hmm. killed enormous uh, portions of the population of, of Europe and especially of Southern Europe. And so when King Prince Henry the Navigator's uh, missions of exploration make their way down this, the West African coast in search of gold, they're not finding gold in any quantity for decades. And the Portuguese were so poor that they needed, uh, in order for the court to keep justifying the, the sending of these missions, they needed some kind of revenue. And so the Portuguese initially set themselves uh, off on these um, raiding missions along the African coast, trying to grab, you know, handfuls of slaves here and there and take them back to Europe for sale. And they discovered very quickly, long before the transatlantic slave trade existed, that the sale of slaves into Europe, mar European markets was extremely lucrative. And the Catholic Church, even in this phase, became involved in the purchase and sale of slaves. So there were a lot uh, of slaves its, in Europe? Oh, so at, at its height, yes, in the 16th century, yeah. it is believed that the population of Lisbon, for example, was 10% black, meaning 10% people in slavery or almost immediately in the immediate recent past, slaves themselves. Same was true of Seville in Spain. You write that it wasn't just slavery that devastated large areas of Africa, but the process of enslavement. Um, 
Hasn't it been estimated that around 12 million Africans were put on slave ships uh, under the, the horrifying conditions following uh, when Columbus crossed the Atlantic? Yeah, so the conventional number nowadays is 12 and a half million people wow. um, boarded onto ships. But this number does not um, uh, take into account the devastation that this gave rise to on West African soil and on Central African soil. Uh, as the slave trade develops in tandem with the development of plantation agriculture, and by the way, let me say that plantation is kind of a, uh, we don't think of it as necessarily a beautiful word, but it, it is nonetheless a euphemism. This is really like prison labor um, with medieval levels of you know, human rights. Um, these are prison labor camps for production of agricultural commodities. As this sector takes off in Brazil first, and then in Barbados second, and then up and down the Caribbean, and then finally to the United States South, uh, the demand for slaves from sourced in Africa explodes. And as the demand for slavery, um, enslaved people explodes in Africa, the slave trade migrates from place to place as Europeans uh, provide specific trade goods in exchange for human beings that they're purchasing from, from local African societies. As coastal societies become depleted of um, expendable people, and these are usually people they have captured in war from against neighboring societies, the slave trade begins to move inland. And further, as, the, as plantations develop in the West, slavery or the slave trade moves further and further inland in West and Central Africa to the point which, um, or to the point where uh, you see entire regions uh, far into the interior of, of West and Central Africa caught up in warfare and depredation, one society against another uh, in exchange for guns, alcohol, and textiles for the most part, um, trading slaves to Europeans. And so this number of 12.5 million is a vast underestimation. Uh, no one knows for certain, but one strong guess is that perhaps 40%, again, beyond that number, uh, people were killed in just the mere drumming up of human beings for provision uh, of, of traders on the coast. So uh, 6 million lives or more were lost in or near their homelands in the hunt for slaves. So uh, what impact did that have on Africa's domestic societies? It had two enormous um, impacts, and they're, they, they are probably both with us today uh, in powerful ways. One of them is, so in the 17th uh, century and early 18th century, when this trade is at its peak, um, Africa is thought to have had approximately altogether about 100 million people total, the entire continent. And so right away from these numbers, we're seeing the loss of uh nearly 20 million individuals. Uh, that's, that's just an astounding demographic toll. And so it is commonly remarked today that Africa has the fastest demographic growth of any continent in the world. And some people wring their hands and say, what's gonna happen to the rest of the world when Africa has 3 billion people as it probably will at a minimum by the end of this century, perhaps much more than that. But a lot of what is present day African growth actually deserves to be seen as a rebound effect from the depression of African demographics in prior ages. Europe was growing fast demographically. 
partly due to the riches that it was extracting from Africa in terms of gold, but especially in terms of uh, expropriated labor. And Africa's population was being depressed because of the loss of this nearly 20 million people out of a total population of 100 million people. Very quickly, the other effect is that, as I discuss in my book, when you have so many people disappearing via slave hunts and via Con local conflicts here and there that are being fed by this European trade. Because one Bond group was being set upon by another. The Europeans inspired groups to fight each other so that they could get sl slaves. Exactly. Um, England in this era was selling 20% of its guns, for example, to West Africa to encourage the slave trade. Um, bonds of social trust were dissolving um, all over the place. Uh, when you didn't know from one day to another or one um, harvest season to another, whether you, if you went out to the field to cut your crop, your, your, your uncle or your son or your brother was going to disappear uh, because somebody would, you know, come to reap them into the slave trade. So it was mostly um, able-bodied young men who were being lost. What about women? It was people of reproduct prime reproductive age in particular. Um, uh, young men were the primary candidates in, uh, for most of the European traders most of the time, but, but uh, women were by no means exempt. Um, I just want to emphasize this social trust thing. It is commonly remarked that Africa, actually a bit exaggerated, that Africa is a place of great conflict and great kind of disunion and turmoil today, um, which I think is actually a bit overdone. Um, but, but there are serious studies, some of which are cited in my work, that, that trace some of Africa's political problems, in fact, to the sequelae of, of this erosion or destruction of social trust via the slave trade. Now, the, the, uh, the 12 million, 12 and a half million, were considered an even greater commodity than the gold, silver, tobacco, sugar, and cotton, weren't they? Uh, two things need to be said there. One of them is that the product of their labor in every place where slaves were uh, uh, reconstituted, where societies were constituted on the basis of slavery, meaning Brazil, meaning Barbados, meaning Jamaica, meaning Saint-Domingue, which subse subsequently becomes Haiti after the revolution there in 1804, meaning in the American South. In each of these places, the value of the products produced by slaves vastly outpaced the value of all of the extraction committed by Spain in its conquest of uh, great uh, American civilizations like the Inca and the Aztec. So the Spaniards very famously had these enormous galleons carting off gold and silver for ages uh, for sale to, uh, well, for transport back to Europe, but also for sale to China um, throughout uh, this early modern period. Production from plantation labor in all of the places I've just cited outstripped in the total value of the, the gold trade that, that, or, and silver trade that, that Spain famously enjoyed. The other piece of your value proposition question though is that the value of the slaves themselves, slaves meaning as a commodity, as a saleable product, so to speak, was greater than the value of, uh, in the case of the United States, uh, during the high period of the cotton trade, for example, greater than the value of all of the railroads and factories in the United States in the 19th century, prior to the Civil War. Well, since this really began with just a European desire to have gold, how did it 
deteriorate into this other thing where uh, suddenly the, the, the people, uh, the Africans themselves were considered a commodity. There must have been some kind of a, a switch in, in, uh, in values, no? Um, yes, interesting question. So there's, there's, there's two pieces here. One of them is that the, the, um, the Portuguese who sort of founded all of this uh, uh, phenomena, they were looking for gold, but as I said earlier, they weren't finding it immediately. So they began trading for slaves into Europe. As they get further down the coast, they arrive in 1471 in Ghana, they discover a great amount of gold there. They imagine that the entire continent of Africa must be like Ghana. And so contrary to the myth that they were obsessed with going to Asia, they spent the next two decades not even really trying to get to Asia, but further exploring the rest of Africa looking for gold. They don't find tremendous amounts of gold right away elsewhere in Africa, but when they get to a place called Sao Tome off the coast of Central Africa, um, somebody has the sort of inspiration to bring sugar, which was an emerging lucrative luxury item uh, from Madeira, far to the north in the Atlantic, and try to plant it in Sao Tome. And they started bringing slaves from the nearby African coast to plant sugar in Sao Tome, this volcanic equatorial island, where the conditions were as good as anywhere in the world before or since for the growing of sugar. And so sugar takes off in Sao Tome to, to, to immense profit for the Portuguese. And a few years later then skips across the Atlantic to, to um, Brazil. But what the Portuguese discovered is as they're trading for gold with Ghana, with, it was not called Ghana then, but what we now call Ghana for its gold, they discovered that the Ghanaians were willing to buy, Portuguese didn't have very many goods to sell to the Ghanaians. Ghanaians had a very high material culture of their own. Portugal was poor. Portugal initially starts trading with Northern Europe for goods that the Ghanaians might like. Uh, but when they, when, when Portuguese get to Central Africa, they discover that the Ghanaians would actually buy slaves from them because the Ghanaians could put those mm. slaves to work as diggers of gold and as porters. And this is a kind of eureka moment for the Portuguese that Africans will buy and sell Africans with us. Because the key is, let me just finish yeah. the thought. The key is that Africans did not have a concept in this moment of themselves being African. Mm. To the Ghanaians, the people being brought from a place called Benin or from Congo or from wherever were just other people. It was, they didn't have any idea, oh, this is a plot by the Portuguese to enslave Africans. This, is, this was just an economic activity for them. There was no synthetic idea that there's this thing called Africans, such as the Portuguese believe. The other key thing is no African ever went to the New World to see the uses, the extreme uses and abuses that the Africans as slaves were being subjected to there. And since slavery in an African context was much like slavery almost everywhere else in the world up until that point, meaning non-chattel slavery, there was no notion that slavery was a self-perpetuating institution, that anyone sold into bondage was being condemned on the basis of their race and in perpetuity, including their children and their children's children on and on forever and ever into slavery. They had no idea of any. And so the point is not to minimize the, the, the notion that Africans share culpability in having helped feed the slave trade, 
but it's to contextualize what this would have all represented in the minds of the people participating in it in that moment. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. The blackness. Keep the game on. back with Howard W. French, uh, his book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, is published by Live Right. So you're saying that uh, what was going on undercut the cultural diversities of the people of Africa into a single category of blackness. Um, all the, the inhabitants of the continent and, and their descendants were now one and the same. But we're still seeing the, the diversity playing out today with tensions from one, one, what are we going to use the word tribal or whatever, cultural group to, to another, aren't we? Um, these are two very separate matters. What I was saying earlier was that as Africans began to trade in human beings with Europeans, uh, human beings that the Europeans intended to subject to slavery in a chattel-type institution, those Africans had no conception of themselves as being Africans per se. They had no conception of the overall project of the Europeans, which was to enslave Africans um, in a blanket fashion, that this was a pro an anti-African project per se on the part of, of Europeans. The Africans had no reason, having, never having left Africa or never having arrived in the new world to see what the Europeans were actually up to, the Africans had no, uh, human beings were African to Africans. There was no such thing as we're a category called African. So that's one matter. Um, the notion of Africans being divided into tribes today <clears throat> is a very complicated subject about which I would say a couple of things. One of them is that in the early, late middle ages and early modern era, when all of these things begin happening, Africa was in, the in a phase of political consolidation very much like what was happening in Europe in that era, where small kingdoms were fighting against each other and gradually a process of political consolidation and agglomeration was taking place. This has been seen, this kind of process has been seen all over the world and is messy and violent and, and takes time. Um, this process of political consolidation and agglomeration, as I've called it, was interrupted by European, um, uh, the, the European arrival in the African context. Uh, at that time, according to Portuguese and other European accounts in the 15th, 16th, and 17th century, the West African landscape was full of very sophisticated, very ambitious, very sort of governance intensive African polities. Um, a couple of them which receive a lot of attention in my book are for example, Benin, which I referred to earlier, um, and Congo, a uh, kingdom uh, which is spelled with a K, but is located in the same region as the country we now call Congo. Uh, Congo sent ambassadors to Europe. Uh, it had uh, adopted Portuguese as the language of the court and had laws and record keeping. It had um, priests um, who were um, uh, um, 
what's the word for it? Uh, it's not accredited, but we're sort of um, elevated uh, and recognized by the Vatican. One of them is actually buried in the Vatican. Um, and so there's this enormous political sophistication which gets derailed in, in large part by the collision with Europe around the slave trade in this era. What the Europeans then begin to do in a subsequent time, meaning a couple of centuries later in the very beginnings of the colonial era. So the colonial era doesn't begin until the 19th century. And the Europeans go about Africa with an intense uh, aim of codification, meaning they're going to try to name, um, attach names to every ethnic group or what they perceive as ethnic groups that they encounter and attribute virtues and um, uh, uh, negatives to each ethnic group that they encounter. And in many cases, in, in, in almost every region of Africa, these sorts of notions that the sort of Europeans begin to apply in a colonial setting acquire the force of law. In other words, this group, let's take Nigeria, for example, the Northern Nigerians, the, the British said, were not great for education, but they were perfect for martial uses. So we'll put all of them in the army. The people in Southeastern Nigeria, the, notably the, the, the Igbo, they are really good at learning. So we'll concentrate on providing schools for them. This process was seen in places as varied as Nigeria, which I just mentioned, Sudan, Rwanda, Burundi, over and over and over again. And so much of the so-called tribalism that one sees in Africa today actually has roots in this codification process and nomenclature process where, where Europeans in this sort of the age of the encyclopedia uh, and sort of um, scientific method taken to pseudoscientific extremes was, uh, th this was the result of that. Wasn't the... Uh... <clears throat> The Christianization of uh, all of these people, an attempt to kind of make them the same? Um, so I don't know what you mean by make them the same. Well, but, um, I mean, at the same time that we're, we're stressing the differences, we are then uh, pretty much forcing them all to, uh, to believe in the same religion. Although there are, I guess, uh, I've heard there are, there's a whole Jewish group in Kenya, but otherwise it was pretty much Christianized until later when uh, some people started changing again. Well, um, I think you're oversimplifying things. Uh, well, that's not, that's not surprising. I've been known to do Anyway, you're the expert, not me. No, no, no I can give you a simple example that will make you understand what I mean. Um, so Europe was by no means united over religion. Okay, I mean, there were religious wars right. in Europe throughout the time we're talking about. And but, the, mo the, but most, but the, the most countries were involved dividing, are, yeah, are Catholic and, and Protestant, obviously. The most famous dividing line is between Catholic and Protestant. And Catholics and Protestants were both imperialists. Catholics and Protestants were both involved in the slave trade and subsequently in colonial efforts. And so it was not as if Europeans said, let's all get together and impose unity on Africa and have one kind of belief in Christianity. No. Um, Africans were um, were proselytized and in some cases forced to adopt European uh, religions according to the national preferences of the imperial power. And those dividing lines are with us still today in Europe as well. 
Wasn't a law passed in Barbados in 1661 and, uh, and uh, adopted in Antigua, Jamaica, South Carolina, elsewhere, that declared that Africans were a, quote, heathenish, brutish, and uncertain, dangerous kind of people, and that white owners should therefore assume near total control over their lives? Correct. So you are quoting from uh, the first of the so-called Black Codes, uh, and I describe Barbados in this precise era as the sort of seed crystal of uh, the birth and spread of chattel, C-H-A-T-T-E-L, which is derived from the same Latin root as the word cattle, chattel slavery in, in the New World. And uh, one of the sort of foundational ideas behind the legitimized the legitimization of chattel slavery as an institution. Chattel slavery was a, was a historic innovation. Slavery is universal in human society going back as long as anyone can trace, but chattel slavery was new. Uh, and one of the uh, foundational bases of chattel slavery was that black people are fundamentally um, irredeemable or worthless in terms of culture or in terms of potential. And therefore, Black people needed to be treated categorically different from other people. Black people have no rights. Black people have no merits. Black people's only purpose in life is to service the needs of white people. And all of those ideas are sort of brought home in the language you just quoted from, and, um, which speak, speaks of heathenish people. And didn't that lead to uh, many of the slaves being worked to death? You point out that their lifespans were probably seven years or less. Uh, yes. Um, the, the, uh, so another foundational idea of this chattel slavery um, phenomenon is that because Africans have no uh, particular worth as human beings, that they were totally expendable, uh, that it was better to... Um, uh, work uh, an African slave or an enslaved African as hard as one could and extract as much labor as one could from them as possible in the shortest period of time on the theory that it was cheaper to replace them than it was to sort of husband them as one might with an animal. In fact, you quote an English planter in Antigua who wrote in 1751 that it was cheaper to work slaves to the utmost and by the little fair uh, and hard usage to wear them out before they become useless and unable to do service, and then to buy new ones to fill up their places. That's exactly the idea. And this, this, uh, this notion was pursued straight up the Caribbean, um, from starting from Barbados all the way to, to Hispaniola and Saint-Domingue, which become Haiti. It, it becomes, it, this is, there's a, a bit of a sort of mutation of this idea in the American environment, meaning the United States, because in 1807, the slave trade is, is prohibited. Um, and so with the Haitian Revolution in 1804 uh, and this um, slavery, uh, there, a, a great migration begins in the United States of slavery from the Old South or the Upper South, meaning Virginia and the other nearby states to the Mississippi River Valley where cotton becomes the king crop and the most important item in terms of propelling American growth in, in the 19th century prior to the Civil War. But because the slave trade was stopped in 1807, American um, uh, plantation owners 
had began to have see themselves as having an interest in encouraging the fecundity of or the re reproductive potential of their slaves. Uh, and I don't wish to make it sound as if they suddenly became as a class uh, very kind and enlightened masters of, of their enslaved peoples, but they began to see that not working their slave to death in the quickest possible manner, as was the case in, in the sugar economies of the Caribbean, uh, made more sense. My guest is Howard W. French. His book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, is published by Live Right. Uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. But uh, before that, weren't populations deliberately separated in the Americas and Caribbean to prevent family and kinship groups from being able to communicate with each other because there were concerns that um, if, they, uh, if they didn't do that, uh, there would be rebellion because the Europeans were outnumbered? Yes. I mean, this was done everywhere uh, where plantation slavery was implanted, uh, beginning in Brazil and then proceeding through the Caribbean and the United States, that precisely, as you said, uh, plantation owners constantly worried about the risk of rebellion. By the way, rebellion begins on slave ships themselves before the slaves actually arrive in the New World. Slaves are constantly rebelling. Um, and so plantation owners alive to the risk of of rebellion because in fact, nobody wants to be a slave um, ever in history. Um, uh, this, the, one of the strategies for containing rebellion was this very deliberate breaking of cultural bonds between people by, by consciously mixing people of, of, this happens in two ways, mixing people of, of highly varied origins and separating nuclear families. And so through those two devices, um, bonds of language and of shared culture quickly get broken up. So how important is the Haitian slave revolt to the story that you're telling here? Uh, the Haitian slave revolt is one of the, uh, easily, one of the most important um, uh, chapters in modern history, in my view. Uh, the Haitian slave revolt, rebellion uh, or revolution is the only slave rebellion that we know of uh, anywhere that in which um, a, a major population of slaves uh, succeeded in abolishing slavery, freeing itself and abolishing slavery forever, and moreover, starting an independent state out of the ruins of the previous slave society that they that that had prevailed there. This is the first and only time that this has ever happened. Uh, the Haitian slaves, who we're calling them Haitians, but it's important to understand these were all actually Africans because people are dying within seven years of arriving on the soil. That means any adult had their, at least their childhood on African soil. And so these Africans brought to Haiti who, who, who rose up and prevailed defeat the three greatest imperial powers of the era in series. First Spain, then England, than France. Actually, they defeat France twice, but for simplicity's sake, let's just put it like that. Um, France and, and, and Britain send, uh, in order to try to suppress the slaves, the largest naval convoys that either of them had ever sent overseas up until that time in their entire history. And the Africans won nonetheless. And so the significance of the Haitian slave 
revolution is manifold. There are many reasons to call it the, the, one of the greatest events in modern history. One of them uh, is that this is the first true fulfillment in every regard of the ideals of the Enlightenment. We celebrate the American Revolution, we celebrate the French Revolution, but the Haitian Revolution is the first time in this era of supposed enlightenment where the most important value of the enlightenment, meaning universal freedom, is actually enforced. Now we it's tend the first time. We tend to think of slavery totally because of uh, our history in terms of the United States and the Civil War. But you point out that the trade of colonial North America was overwhelmingly directed toward the Caribbean, which you call the boiler room of the North American economy. And around the time of the American Revolution, didn't white Jamaicans have annual incomes 35 times that of British North Americans? And weren't more slaves trafficked to Martinique, which is less than a quarter of the size of Long Island, than to the entire colonial uh, U.S., while the French were happy to swap tiny Guadeloupe for all of French Canada? And you have um, just a minute or two to answer because we're pretty much running out of time. Leonard, I'm delighted to have such a close reader of the book like you, and, I'm, and I mean that sincerely, and I hope that others will, will wish to follow up on these threads. Um, so very quickly, the United States, the colonies that became the United States would not have been viable, economically speaking, except for their trade with the slave societies of the Caribbean. That was the essence of their economic life. Um, and as you said, and as I wrote, um, these slave societies, Jamaica, uh, Haiti, Barbados, etc., Martinique, Guadeloupe, were far richer uh, than, the, um, than the continental United States and far more important, economically speaking, to, to Britain and France than the United States or Canada in their era. Hmm. Um, and uh, so this is, these are things that are completely neglected in terms of the way we tell our history. So, so whether one looks at this in terms of the Enlightenment, Haiti is the first full realization of the Enlightenment, whether we look at it in terms of how the United States got all onto its feet, economically speaking, it comes with the colonies trading with Haiti and with the English islands or British islands of the Caribbean, when we think of the United States take off as an economic power in the 19th century, it comes via the transplantation of the slave plantation complex into the Mississippi Valley and the takeoff of cotton, which is the essential ingredient of the Industrial Revolution. One thing after another points to the fact that this institution of chattel slavery is the motor of modernity. It is the thing that made the West diverge from the rest of the world. We're very close to out of time, but just one more question. You cover over six centuries, but you end your book at the onset of World War II. Doesn't the historical legacy of all of this, uh, the inequality, remain one of today's most important issues? Oh, it does indeed. So I end with World War II because World War II is the era, the sort of proximate beginning of the end of uh, the sharecropper um, uh, institution in the Deep South and the sharecropper institution of sharecropping in the Deep South under Jim Crow is kind of the, the sort of final permutation of the slave era. Um, uh, but I make no uh, pretense. And in fact, in the future work, I plan to turn my attention to the legacy of all of this in terms of the workings of our contemporary society and the origins of our commonwealth uh, today. 
South Africans are complaining that although this new uh, COVID variant has popped up all over the world, all that we're hearing about is South Africa. Um, yeah, so um, the, the, the most consistent thing one, one can find with regard to Western attitudes toward Africa is disdain, disregard, uh, exemption, isolation, um, and um, disrespect. And so here we have another example of this. South Africa is being punished for having had a really good um, public health service uh, capable enough to publicly assay and detect a variant of uh, an, a variant of interest of this COVID virus and to have reported it to the world. And even though it is not proven that this variant originated in South Africa and has already been shown to be present in a number of other places, some of which don't have any obvious link via travel to South Africa. The reflex outside of Africa from much of the rest of the world was to say, ban Africa, banish we've, Africa. We've run out of time, Keep unfortunately. Thank you so much for being on our show. Howard W. French's book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, is published by Livright. It has a lot of wonderful illustrations. Mr. French is a career foreign correspondent and global affairs writer. He reported for many years for the New York Times, from countries uh, as though as the bureau chief of Central America, the Caribbean, Western Central Africa, Japan, and Korea and China. And he is a member of the board of the Columbia Journalism Review and a professor at Columbia Journalism School. Thank you again. Thank you, Leonard. It's been great to talk with you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to uh, this program and you'd like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And there are links to all of our over 500 past shows on at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me about something you've heard on, on the show or simply say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As you may have heard, WBAI is still experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic, so we're asking anyone who isn't already supporting the station to go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950 right now to become a member. That's 212-209-2950. Why not support the programming that you turn to to learn about the latest important books or documentaries or just a topic you hadn't ever thought about very deeply before, like the one we discussed today? Do it for us. Do it for WBAI. Do it for other listeners who aren't currently in a financial position to be able to support community radio. And one particularly helpful way to contribute is to become a sustaining member for $10, $15 a month or whatever you can afford, what we call a BAI buddy. But however you donate, the important thing is that you take that first step and make a tax-deductible contribution of any amount by calling 212-209-2950 by going online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make the contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at this station, thank you so much. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Gloria G. Romero, the first woman to become the majority leader of the California State Senate, will discuss her new book, Just Not That Likeable, the price all women pay for gender bias. You won't want to miss it, and we'll see you then. <laughs>